Hey, welcome to In The Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost. And yes, that's right, In The Shift is back. I didn't really go anywhere. It's just, you know, I'm just, I'm just amping up the excitement. Can you feel it? Yeah. Um, all over this place right now. So, uh, so look, we're, we're back with another great conversation today. Before I uh, just let you know what that is about, a, a couple of things. One is just a general reflection on, on the conversations to this point and just how, you know, something uh, Shane and I talked about a number of episodes ago was just how the different people's experience of our conversations uh, depend so much on, on where we're at as we listen and what it is that we need in a given moment in time. And, and so we're having a range of conversations, if you like, because we recognize there are, there are different um, needs, there are different um, things that people are looking for in these conversations, and we can't cover all of those, we can't prioritize all of those and, and get to all of those perhaps satisfactorily, but what we're trying to do is, is have a range of conversations that, that can be both um, conversations that help to pull apart stuff and to speak to what we're learning in the process of that pulling apart and also conversations that are, that are perhaps about whether there's hope and whether, you know, and so our last conversation with Frank Ritchie was was one that was more directed towards perhaps those who um, still have some real hope for what might be in the church. Um, now, what that last conversation doesn't mean is that we've suddenly sort of moved on from from highlighting some of the challenges and problems because instead this is like a cyclical process where we have to keep going backwards and forwards saying, okay, what are the, what are the challenges? What are the problems? What are the things that we need to unpick and unravel? And then are there things that, that some might want to put back together again? And if so, what could that look like? Um, and, and those questions will be different again for different people. Like, you know, you get this thing uh, like common enemy intimacy, right? Which is where um, we all kind of form intimate connections to each other because we're all angry about that other thing over there and justifiably so. But that doesn't mean we necessarily all want the same things in the future either. And that's okay. Actually, a part of coming out of the kind of colonizing nature of, of, of evangelicalism in one sense more broadly and then uh, and more specifically kind of in an amplified way in megachurch culture. One of the things about coming out of that is actually allowing those multiplicity of voices and experiences to be heard. And so there is not one path out of this. Uh, in the second half of last year, I, I released an episode uh, called The Multiple Paths of Deconstruction and, and really just exploring the, the fact that there are multiple pathways out of this uh, or, or away from this as we, as we unpick and then seek to to find whatever it is that's on the other side. And there's no one right way to do that. To, to, to say that there was would be, to, um, would be to try and control and colonize all over again, right? And so instead, what I hope we're able to do is to listen to each other, to hear, uh, to, to recognize that what some people may need going forward might not be what I need, um, but able to recognize that and empathize with that and understand that and then also see what it is that I need. And so as we keep going in these conversations, uh, I hope that we're able to hear those different experiences, those different voices, those different perspectives as a part of the tapestry of the kind of conversations that, that we as human beings need to be able to have with one another if we are to move forward in health. Um, so with all of that said, uh, we are charging forward into today's conversation and today's conversation is with uh, two guests, Jess Holdaway, who you may remember, you surely should. If you haven't listened, you should go back and listen to our conversation with, with Jess and Nicole Connor uh, several episodes ago, um, talking about that kind of journey through megachurch life and the kind of trauma that we can experience as a result of that, the burnout, the fatigue, the exhaustion. Um, so Jess is back. That's good news. 
and I had, you know, we've had so much uh, good feedback about that conversation with Jess and Nicole. So Jess is back and we're also joined today by Shalomi Satyaraj. Uh, and, and Jess and Shalomi, um, as you'll hear, are both, you know, both experienced megachurch life in particular as, as young women uh, in their teenage and early uh, sort of young adult years. Um, and, and so we want to talk about some of the, some of the difficult challenges that, that they now reflect upon in that experience. And, uh, you know, at times this conversation, you know, is probably, will feel for some confronting and challenging and uncomfortable and, and it should in many respects. Like there are things that should make us uncomfortable because we have to reckon with them. And, uh, and so they talk today about their experience as young women within that space. Uh, we talk about, you know, that, that sense of, of the kind of messages one might receive as a young woman within, within that megachurch, or that they did within that megachurch space. Um, for Shlomi as well, her experience of, of being a young woman of colour within that space and the kind of the intersections of, of race and colonisation that we find um, within the megachurch experience that she has had. Uh, we talk a bit about purity culture and, and notions of kind of, you know, idealised identities and hyper-femininity um, hyper and hyper-masculinity within those spaces. So there's a bunch of stuff we dive into today. Uh, it's really um, important listening, I think. It is, um, these are things we, we need to keep wrestling with. So although we've been having, you know, uh, in some respects along the way, also some, you know, some, some conversations about sort of, okay, where to from here and that kind of stuff, we are also wanting to keep cycle, cycling back around to say, and also... We we need to continue grappling with the problems and with the challenges, lest we we um, because that actually is a part of how we move forward. To remain open to hearing about the the harm, to hearing about what's um, what's broken, if you like, or what's been um, what's caused harm, so that we can continue reforming and reshaping healthier communities or healthier ways of being on the other side of this um, and that those communities and those ways of being that we reform can continue to be self-reflective ones lest we get to this place where we're like, we have now reached the enlightened way and no longer have to ask ourselves the hard questions, you know. So um, so we're going to keep having the hard conversations and the important conversations about all of this. Uh, and I'm so deeply grateful to to both Jess and Shalomi for the way in which they shared their experience and their insights in this conversation, and I know you're going to find it, I'm sure, um, deeply meaningful as well. Uh, before we jump into it, of course, a little note to say, you can get in touch, feedback at intheshift.com, send us an email, uh, a story, a question, a reflection, uh, and you can of course support the work of In The Shift, in the shift uh, via Patreon, patreon.com slash intheshift, and you can uh, help us to make this thing sustainable in an ongoing way uh, by by offering uh, a, a bit of money each month. Uh, it doesn't have to be much, but it can be as much as you like. And uh, and you'll also, as a part of that, get access to our online Discord um, patron patron only community, where those who support the podcast get the opportunity to to engage in an online space where we share uh, our, our reflections and stories and concerns and questions with each other. Uh, so you can you're more than welcome to do that. Uh, so for now, it's all. All I have to say is this is episode sixty-eight of In the Shift. Let's get into it. So 
So I'm joined today on the In The Shift podcast by Jess Holdaway, who you may remember from uh, episode 61 of the podcast, telling some of her story there, and also by Shalomi Satyaraj. And Shalomi, like Jess, spent her teenage years within the megachurch world and, uh, and has been also writing in recent times and reflecting on some of those experiences, um, on a number of aspects of that experience and also some reflections uh, post that experience. So welcome to both of you, Jess, Shalomi, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Thanks so much. for having me. Um, Jess shared, uh, you shared some of your story or quite a bit of your story last time uh, in terms of your journey in and out of the mega church. Uh, so Shalomi, I was wondering if you could um, offer us a sense of your journey in and then I do know out of out of the mega church space, <laughs> um, what that was like for you. Yeah, definitely. Hello. Thanks so much for having me and listening to my story. So I guess my story really starts with my parents. So I'm Sri Lankan Tamil. And my family migrated here because of the war in Sri Lanka, so it wasn't safe for us. So mum was pregnant with me when she actually migrated to New Zealand. And my parents were very strong Methodists, very God-fearing. You know, you dare not say anything against the church. You know, you dare not say anything against authority or uh, pastors. Um, so we, when we, um, I was born into, I guess, a Methodist little church in central Auckland. I loved it, have very fond memories. And then I got to about the age of eight and my parents wanted me to go to a church that had more youth in it. And so naturally that was uh, the one they found was the mega church. And I grew up within the kids ministry and between the ages of eight and to 17, I was a mega church kid, youth kid. Um, so formative, formative years of my life. Um, I loved it because I was part of this conservative Sri Lankan home where I wasn't allowed to go to parties and I had strict curfews, but my parents let me go to church events because Christians were looking mm. after me, I guess. Um, and I was so involved. I was um, a preteen youth leader. I went on to lead um, youth prayer meetings. They put me on the band for a bit. Like, I don't know what they were doing, what I was doing there, but I loved it. Um <laughs> But for me, I think it really started unraveling when I got to about 15, 16, and I started really questioning um, some of the ideas within in the church. I became really interested in feminism, um, same-sex marriage, uh, reading about that. And I remember going to um, a female youth pastor's house, and there was a girls' brunch. And we were chatting, eating away, and I asked the female youth pastor, look, you know, what do you think about feminism? Um, and she looked me right in the eye, like straight away, very stern, and just said, stop it. We don't talk about that here. Um, and that was when I think things started crumbling for me. I remember getting in my car and just having a breakdown and crying because I just realized that this whole framework and value system that I thought would be with me forever was actually very curated and I wasn't allowed to question it. Um, and I started reflecting and I realized that the mega church was very culturally unsafe. Um, I can talk about that later on. And um, I wasn't getting the same opportunities as a lot of the other women within the church. And I eventually started distancing myself and I eventually got cut out from the church. Um, everyone unfriended me on Facebook. Um, and anyone that would pass me on the street would say, you know, what happened to you? You were so on fire for God. But I think what was really complex is, at this time was I was introduced to the mega church by my family. And my family are very conservative Sri Lankan parents who have very certain ideals about what success and power means. And for them, it was like very certain career paths. So I was sort of forced to do the certain career path. They really wanted me to be a doctor. There was a lot of pressure on that. 
And there was a lot of spiritual guilt like that was alongside that. And around the same time, um, I had to face my family and let them know that that's actually not what I wanted to do. Um, I wanted to do something different. I've always loved writing and reading. And that wasn't taken too well. And my parents were still in the mega church. And I was met with a lot of the devil is attacking you. Um, mm-hmm. If you do this, um, God's not going to bless you. Um, I was told that um, if I wasn't going to do this career path, that I've taken the devil's path. You know, it was very, very scary for a 17-year-old to hear this and not have Mm. the language to articulate the experience. And I really resonated with Jess when she talked about the way that trauma captures within the body because I have a condition called polycystic ovarian syndrome and pretty much it's a hormonal menstrual health condition and I get a lot of pain, I get a lot of nausea, but I also just have a massive weight fluctuations. And within the month that I left the church and told my family I didn't want to do this certain career path, I gained something like 13 kilograms in three weeks and I wasn't eating. Um, and I became incredibly depressed, um, anxious. Um, and at the same time, you're dealing with family, church, but also your belief system's gone. You don't know how to mm. base your life off what to base your life off. You're 17. Um, And so I ended up doing that career path that my parents wanted me to for a year. And then I quit and I went traveling. Um, I solo traveled, um, met really interesting ideas, met really interesting people and um, went through South America and Europe and eventually decided to move to Sydney because like a lot of people, I couldn't deal with the environment that was traumatizing me. Mm. And um moved to Sydney and I did the church hopping thing for a bit. Um, I went to a church that I liked and they went to the bar on a Sunday night. So I was like, this is so cool. You know, Christians (laughs) who drink, Um, but they didn't believe that woman should be in leadership. So that was that. Um, And so um, I started to let Christianity go a bit, but mum made me go to a, a, a church service for Easter. She's like, just go, you know, acknowledge the, what Jesus did for us. And I walked into a mega church service and um, it was an open heaven service <laughs> and open heaven services. How do I explain what an open heaven service is? I don't know. It's, it's obviously different yeah. to a closed heaven service. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of prayer, a lot of people falling over, a lot of tongues, an environment that used to be very comfortable for me, but now wasn't. Um, and they were asking people with pornography addictions to come up to the front for prayer. And I just felt physically sick. And I got up and I ran out of the church and I was scared um, that someone was going to follow me. So I just ran back to my um, accommodation and I broke down on the side of the street because Mm. it suddenly occurred to me that this environment that I thought was, that was so familiar to me was now unsafe. And I didn't want to know who had a pornography addiction. Um, and so I really let it go from then on. Um, and while I was living in Sydney, I came across a blog called Gravity of Guilt. Um, and they write, um, it's run by a woman called Ruby Clear, and they wrote a lot about um experiences of ex-evangelicals, and I really resonated with that. Um, and then I ended up writing an article for them about racism and mega church. Um, I initially wrote it under a pseudonym because I was scared of the mega church. Um, I now have my proper name on it, so progress. Um, But (laughs) writing really has been the way that I've been able to articulate my experience and, again, also articulate how I've been feeling to my parents as well through writing. Um, So, yeah, that's my sort of experience with the megachurch. 
Thank you for sharing that. Um, you know, we were talking a little bit just before we started about how um, when, for all of us coming to this kind of conversation, there's, there's, a, there's feelings that arise, um, using arise in a different context there. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, you know, it is, I'm, I'm very grateful to both of you in, in joining me for, for this conversation because I know that these things aren't particularly easy to talk about in, in more public racing spaces. Um, and so thank you, yeah, just for giving us some insight into that experience. And to just, again, another way of, of seeing how the multiple layers of these can, can strike right to the heart of who we are in some, you know, in some very potent ways. Um, and then the intersection of family um, as well in that. And I know that's true for, for so many people is, is wrestling with a lot of the questions that we get is, what do I do about the fact that now I'm kind of out, but my family is in, and how do I negotiate? You know, so these are not easy things to, to navigate. They're, um, they're complex. Um, for both of you, your experience was as, as young women within this space. Um, I'm interested, I guess, in, and especially in light of some of, a lot of the feedback that, that we get, um, as to what you felt like in that space were maybe the predominant messages you received, you know, as a young woman, for both of you as, as like teenagers growing up in that space, about sort of what a good Christian woman should be like or look like. Like, What kind of messages were you getting about those and perhaps how do you feel about those now? Maybe Jess, do you want to kick us off and then we can go from yeah, there? Yeah, sure. Um, I suppose um, there is a really clear, ideal version of a Christian woman. Um, and I think, Shalome, even when you were sharing your story and you mentioned about the curation of things within the church, um, I think there's a really intentional curation of um, what a woman looks like, a woman of faith, um, yeah, looks like, behaves like, sounds like. I think for me, the messages that I um, heard a lot and and have embodied to some sense are things like a woman as supporter or caretaker or helper, um, the submissive role of woman, um, the kind of <laughs> over-sexualization of women. So, um, uh, you know, a good Christian woman is very beautiful and well put together. Um, you know, she doesn't speak out of turn. She's not too opinionated. She's gentle in her tone, um, but she's also con- she's also um, <laughs> I don't know even know. It's such a sticky place to be. She's not overly sexual in how she presents. Yet she's sexually attractive. <laughs> yeah, um, totally. Yeah. And yeah, there's, I think, even when it comes to like the Proverbs 31 woman and um, all of that, you know, and I even remember things like how your home looks as a Christian woman, what's in your home, because that's your domain, you're in charge of that. So that kind of reflects your character. Um, There was a lot of kind of layers, but really clear curation of a good Christian woman. And I remember even being called out by um, my youth pastor on the way in which I spoke to my boyfriend 
um, and being called out that that was wrong, the way that I was speaking or that I was too disrespectful or that I needed to be more submissive. So it was really, it's not just a, hey, everyone kind of looks the same. It's a real overt, no, this is the standard um, Mm. for being a woman in this faithful context. Yeah. Yeah. And I think as well, like the mega church works in like this reward system, right? Like um, if you do something, you will be rewarded for it through like honor culture or you'll get leadership opportunities. And yeah, there are these certain gender roles. um, And also if you're associated with a man, if you're married, um, there'll be this direct correlation to a reward. And if not, there is a there is like a punishment and might not be as overt, but you might be humiliated for it or you might be embarrassed for it. but the way that they kind of connect the cause and effect, the behavior and reward sort of reinforces what it is to be an, a good Christian woman because you do want to be a leader and you do want to be rewarded. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That feels so true to my experience and even reflecting on um, <clears throat> being a woman in the church. Like when I started getting leadership opportunities within the church, it really ran concurrently with the fact that I got a boyfriend who was very much involved in leadership as well and as soon as that pairing happened then I started being asked to speak you know I will preach Mm -hmm. on stage or um and then even escalating as we escalated further in our relationship towards the marriage goal you know having conversations with the youth pastors about what our future is at the church and whether we would want to be youth pastors or not and and those opportunities only really became available once once I actually came under the covering of a man and I've got my fingers up doing the quotes, but, um, (laughs) you know, it was, it was, you're really, as a woman, you don't, you're not really valuable standing alone and you can't really offer us much (laughs) standing alone. But Mm. as soon as you're under the covering of a male figure, husband, like explicitly, then, um, suddenly you've got all these opportunities. Suddenly there's potential. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there is that real pedestalization of marriage. And I remember because I, when I was a preteen, you know, whenever a leader got engaged, they would be put up on stage and they'd have to talk about how the engagement happened. And it was, you know, this lavish day on a boat and, um, I don't know, their dogs were invited. I don't know. It was just this big thing. And so it made marriage like the goal, the gold standard as, you know, 11, 12-year-old. And I still remember <laughs> the stories. Um and yeah, that's right. And I think also the role that women have in taking on the emotional labor so that men don't actually have to take responsibility of a lot um, is quite strong as well. Um, they, yeah, they're the emotional underlaborer. Mm. Can you maybe unpack that a little bit more for people who might not know what you mean by, by women taking on the emotional labor in that way? Yeah, so women are often having the difficult conversations of there's drama within youth, they're the ones that have to go and um, confront it. Mm. Um, as well as that, um, if there's any sort of apology, often a woman has to go forward and do it. And I actually have an example that I can probably pull up. Um, when I wrote an article um, on racism in the mega church, um, we can talk a bit more about later, but the mega church male youth pastor painted his face brown was blatantly, overtly quite racist um, and it hurt a lot of people. And I haven't heard anything from him. I don't even know if he's read my writing, nothing. But I got um, a message from the female youth pastor 
which I thought was quite interesting that I really like to read out because it might actually really yeah prove this point but also like before reading it out I want to say like there is I don't know I left the mega church feeling quite a bit of resentment towards female leadership because they are having these difficult conversations and making you feel a bit uncomfortable and um, there's a mean girl culture it's very competitive I didn't want anything to do with female leadership I didn't trust women when I left and everything I understood everything after I got this message and I'll read it to you and I'll blur out names. <laughs> um, so it says, Hi, Shalomi. Yesterday, insert male youth pastor name, showed me your blogs. Hence why I'm getting in touch. I would actually love to give you a call, but first I just want you to know how truly sorry I am for the pain I caused you, for not allowing you to feel heard or understood, for being insensitive and offensive because of my own ignorance. I'm glad you have found your voice and language to name and express how you felt. I understand if you aren't ready to chat and there is no pressure at all. Though I am still a pastor at, um, insert church name, I very much had my own journey of deconstruction. Hmm, interesting. And I'm ready to talk about the hard things now that never got talked about at church when I was your age. Um, that was the message I got. I give it like a four out of 10, which is me being generous. Um, <laughs> I don't expect you know, these white youth pastors to understand what white guilt is, but they can Google it if they're listening. Um, but, yeah, I thought this was an interesting message, but because of the first sentence, it said, yesterday, male youth pastor showed me your blogs. And it was him that painted, you know, his face brown. It was him who, you know, ran all these events that were, that were inherently racist. And he's hid behind and put forward this female youth pastor to come forward and apologize. And that was when it clicked for me that the system absolves men of all their responsibility and uses women as scapegoats. And mm. um, yeah, I think that was a bit of a turning point for me when I was understanding like the system, I guess, of patriarchy. Um, yeah. I think if that, if that is enough of unpacking for you, <laughs> I should unpack more. No, it really, you know, it's, it's very, it's really helpful. Um, yeah, for sure. Um, the, I, I even think about sort of the, the kind of the gendered shape of the messages, like as, as a guy in this kind of space, right. Um, of like, um, women clearly being spoken about as having the kind of the more emotional sensibilities. And so, so men are just, um, you know, <laughs> Whatever the the men just drive forward, you know, uh, yeah. and then the women make all the relationships work, and that's mm -hmm. so deeply unhealthy as a as a model for yeah. community. Yeah, I think um, like explicitly, yeah. I remember doing um, marriage works and like doing marriage course and um, so this doing... is this is, marriage works was a pre marriage course, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So mm -hmm. the boyfriend that I named ended up marrying and yes. um, whom I love very much. And, um, you know, we had to do a lot of prep, um, including our accountability couple, um, to make sure that we weren't having sex before marriage and obviously having a marriage course to make sure we were truly compatible, you know, and approved of as a match, et cetera. Um, but, you know, within that, um, within that, there was a lot of talk of, oh, men want respect, women want love. 
Um, and there was a real mm. differentiation of those two things and um, woven in with that was it's a woman's job to make her husband feel like a man, um, to make her husband feel um, powerful and empowered and and feel like he can go and fulfill his purpose for the Lord. And um, it's a woman's job to to support her husband in that. Um, and that crossed over into all different areas, right? So how yeah. like foregoing sort of my own drive and purpose for what I would like to do with my life um, or what I would like to do for the Lord um, um, couldn't really actually happen unless it furthered my husband's vision first. Um, mm. And then when it came to, um, you know, having a sexual relationship, it was always the husband's in leadership and it was always my job to always defer to him and make sure that I was meeting his needs. Mm -hmm. Um, and pretty much that whole caretaker role is just so unhealthy that it keeps, it keeps women overworked. It keeps women, um, in these vulnerability, it keeps women in these positions where they're, um, literally managing how they're presenting to the world. Like, always and that is their work and it also I feel like it kept me so hyper aware of everyone else's feelings that if someone wasn't feeling okay it was my fault and Mm. it made me fail in my role as a Christian woman or not have enough faith and it became my problem and so literally like every day you're just going out gauging the room constantly kind of um, understanding how people are feeling and whether you're presenting in the right way and making sure that you're not presenting in a way that offends somebody else. Yeah. And, and if you do, then it's your job to fix it. And so literally the entire weight of responsibility of how people were feeling is on a woman's shoulder, basically. Yeah. Um, and it's so codependent. And especially within the context of megachurch where you have these power dynamics of men being the ultimate authority, even God being called male all the time, you know, a male all the time being like, we worship the father, we submit to the father. Like there's all this sort of subliminal indoctrination of the male head. And so we're just in this context where we're constantly fighting for male approval to make sure that we're okay as human beings. Our identity can't really be found outside of a man's approval of how we're being in the world. Yeah. And that's pretty messed up. It is so messed up because I'm still unlearning that I'm not married. Um, And (laughs) even dating outside of the church now that I've left, you know, the church, I still feel like I need to like please the man or be the caretaker. And if if I can't help them, then what's my role? And even having to de- redefine what my role is in dating when I left Christianity years ago, I'm still unlearning that. And that's how deeply rooted that stuff is. Um, and yeah, it's also really interesting, I guess, to look at how the mega church puts women in this box and then puts men in another box. I guess like I could use like a really bad like mega church analogy, but like a train track. <laughs> with women on one side and a carriage and men on the other side, you know, they're both stuck in this carriage. And I think the way that these gender roles are sort of ingrained in you is using hyper-feminine principles, hyper-femininity. And by what I mean about hyper-femininity is um, 
they sort of start in a, a kind of more of a surface level. It's like, you know, women, they wear jewelry and they wear makeup and they, and, you know, you've got women's conference and, you know, in the goodie bags are pearl necklaces and, you know, the lead male, oh, what's her name? Female youth pastor is doing makeovers for women on stage. And, oh, you know, it's very hyper feminine. And underneath that, when you peel that back, that's when they start drilling into you these certain roles of, you know, the, you're the caretaker, you're um, God's little princess. Um, and you, yeah, you do the emotional labor and you should be furthering the agenda of your husband or the man that you choose to be with. Um, and I always think it's quite interesting because I don't know. I've always thought about like why women just don't break out of that system, right? It's like there are women still doing that stuff in the mega church. Why? And so I've been thinking about this quite a lot. And the reality is like if if we if women are in some carriage, maybe they could like all stand together and push it open and open up, you know, gender diversity and all these aspects. But the reality is the church creates conflict between women. Like it doesn't actually want women to be friends and stand in solidarity with each other because that that's going to ruin the agenda of the mega church. You know, white men are in control. We can't have women, you know, jeopardizing that. And like I was saying before, this mean girl culture is cultivated. Um, and in politics, when you talk about hyperfemininity, there is also a um, branch that talks about how humiliation is a big part of it. So if you're not hyperfeminine, you'll get shamed for it. The amount of times I saw the female youth pastor slut shame other women for what they were wearing on stage, it was too much. I've seen it. Um, it makes me so angry. And um, and then obviously you're creating conflict because these, there are these women and youth competing over men, like dating men. Um, they're having prayer meetings and not inviting other women. And the craziest, most dangerous part of this and creating conflict in this mean girls culture is you're getting the group that's oppressed, oppressing each other. It's a self-sustaining, self-watering system. And yeah, I think that's really trippy to sort of get your head around. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I completely resonate. I think hearing and what I was feeling as well is there is a deep distrust of women that is fostered within some of these churches and there's a distrust when it comes to purity culture is pretty clear distrust of women where um women lead people astray or lead men astray um or they're sort of seen as temptresses or you know there's a deep distrust I think of the female body I think there's a deep distrust of women's power and character and I think it becomes so internalized and I know for me when I left the church and even now I'm still actually working really hard to regret, regain that self-trust for me um, and to figure out where I have internalized the deep distrust of being female. Um, and even the other layer of that is um, beginning to reevaluate what female friendships look like for me um, and how I trust again <laughs> in a different context and how do I yeah, how do I kind of reevaluate those dynamics that were so potent and clear within that mega church system? And how do I go? How are those still at work within me? But I think you've completely named it, Shalomi, that it's just that deep distrust of women. 
And the whole system just contributes to that. It keeps, and that's why we're kept in helper roles. It's why we're kept in caretaker roles and safe things that we can achieve and we can make the platters beautiful and we can serve the speaker's tea and, you know, we can do all that stuff. But when it comes to making the strategic decisions and when it comes to actually speaking the word of God or et cetera, um, we're just not going to let you do that without some heavy supervision. <laughs> Yeah, or some heavy sure. guidance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd be interested to know about what actually happened at male conference. <laughs> we had a lot of makeovers. <laughs> male conferences. Uh, <laughs> now, I had the I had the fortune, I, I guess, of going to both because as a musician, I got to go to lots of the women's conferences as well. Um, funnily enough, fun fact about the difference between the men's and the women's conferences, I don't know if this is the case everywhere, but it was the case at ours, which is that male musicians could play at the female conference, but female musicians and singers couldn't be on stage at the male conference because men would be too distracted. It's a sexualization of women's bodies, right? So that you couldn't even be on stage. Um, and because also then most of the prayer times were going to center around masturbation and porn. Um <laughs> And so it's and it's a weird. Women aren't into masturbation and porn, and no, no, also, no. They don't. They don't know about those things. Men can't control themselves. They have zero self control, right? Mm -hmm. So, how so it's, a, it's a weird thing a that in, in such a conservative space, it hypersexualizes both genders. Actually, and it, you know, both both men and women in those spaces, because men are beasts who essentially can't control themselves, so we can't even have women in the room, um, and and women are are the objects of that desire and lust and have to manage the experience of the man, you know. So that whole system is <sighs> fucked up. So um <laughs> uh so uh <laughs> the um and the, yeah so and then a lot of sports I'd say mm. at men's conferences. So a lot of um a lot of sports analogies <laughs> and a lot of yeah. um competitions that involved hypermasculinity. So um you know in your pre-service warm-ups or in your whatever it was, the, the kind of activities that were happening around the place were rowing machines and push-up competitions and pie-eating. and You know, it was all very kind of, yeah, all very kind of grunty, hyper-masculine um, stuff. Pie-eating? So kind of that sounds pie, fun. I like how, yeah, I think like eating mince, <laughs> mince pies on record time or something. I don't know. Don't you know that makes oh, you a good Christian man? <laughs> what did we have? We had cupcakes and we only got one each. Ugh. I'll tell you what, though, going to women's conferences, sometimes I was like, I wouldn't mind being a daughter of the king and a princess of the house. It sounds quite nice. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> the, one of the things that's coming up as we're talking about all of this, and it's, and it's come up a lot since we started these conversations this year, has been um, purity culture. So I wonder if we could like zero in on that a little bit more. Yeah, I think we're, we're sort of talking around it anyway. Um, especially in youth spaces, right, where, where this is... Once, of course, once you're married, <clears throat> you don't even have to ever have to sort of really, really talk about any of it ever again. But <clears throat> um, as a as a young person coming through the system, and as a young woman in particular for both of you, what was what was the impact of purity culture for you? How what did that look like, and 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 what did that leave you with? Shalomi, let's start. Confusing, I guess. Um, I think you've talked a lot about in the, in previous episodes about the sort of black and white thinking of the mega church. You know. It's, yes or no, or it's no to abortion, or it's, again, the binaries are used with like male and female and nothing else. Um, I think the megachurch is a bit confused about purity culture itself. Um, 
it says you so I'll use an example. Um, so the female, I'm using a lot of the female youth pastor here, sorry. Um, <laughs> she got up on stage before a camp um, and she said to us, you're not, you're not allowed to wear bikinis and you're not allowed to wear mini skirts and you're not allowed to wear like strappy tops that show your bra straps because, you know, you, you, know, you don't want to be a temptress. T- bra straps are very way? alluring, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> and how dare boys know what hold your boobs up? Like, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's just shocking, you know. And like, you had to get a good one piece. You had to invest in one before you went to summer camp. I hope women and, don't wear belts. Women don't wear belts, do they? Because I am not sure. We shouldn't be trusted <laughs> seeing those. That's for sure. Sorry, carry on. <laughs> I don't know. We should call the youth pastor. Um, <laughs> And I remember her saying to us, oh, and this conversation was just with the um, females in the church. Obviously, men can't be in the room when these conversations are ha- happening. Mm. But she said, you know, you should wear a long skirt anyway because, um, you know, guys won't be able to see your legs, but they'll be thinking, oh, like, damn, I wonder what's under there. And I was confused because mm. the leaders were cheering <laughs> when this youth pastor was saying that. Mm. And I just thought, wait, you're telling me to cover up my body so I don't sexualize it and also don't tempt men, but you want men's imaginations to hypersexualize me. Mm. And so in that way, the church doesn't really have a yes, no answer to what you wear in women's bodies. It kind of wants to keep you in your place, but also wants to use you to allure men in. Um, it's very confusing. Um so I'm very confused by purity culture, really, is my answer to that question. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I think when you, <laughs> what you've just laid out, um, because there's not a lot of rational, I think, value-based themes going on with purity culture, it actually feels like it's about control um, and having, you know, having things work the way that we want them to work. Um, and yeah, having control and and knowing who is in control and who isn't and kind of how do we police this? How do we police this, this ideal, you know, version of Christianity that we are wanting to make happen? How do we help our women in our youth group fill, fulfill that ideal of what a good Christian woman is, you know, and we are going to sort of create this environment we were able to control how that happens. And I think that, yeah, that ideal persona of, you know, again, the Christian woman, it doesn't make room, obviously, for everyone who doesn't fit that. Um, and also it it makes us familiar with control. It, it sort of desensitizes us to control. And what scares me about purity culture is that really what you're what we're describing in purity culture is, is the foundation of rape culture, right? It's yep. because it's based in control. Yep, that's and it. And mm. there's there's not a mutual embodiment, there's not a mutual relationship happening, there's not mutual respect happening where each person owns what's theirs. There's none of that happening within purity culture. You've literally got this massive skew of power dynamic and it scares me. It scares me that it's yeah. about control. Yeah, that's it. Like, Jess, that's completely it. It is like the underpinnings of rape culture and also just teaching women that 
they should take responsibility if something was to happen with men. So something that used to always be talked about in the female sex chats. So that on Friday nights when we had youth, they used to split the, the women and men up for sex chats and relationship chats. And something that was always talked about was blowjobs um, within the women. And um, I remember the uh, one of the leaders, she's um, now very high up in leadership at a mega church, said, um, you know, women, like if you give a blowjob, like, yeah, you're giving a blowjob, but you're actually causing the man to sin as well. And just that idea mm. that that responsibility is yours. Mm. Yeah. You know, and that A, silences women if there is any sort of abuse within the church, but B, it absolves men of their responsibility. They feel completely invincible. That is the underpinning of rape culture. And it is really sickening seeing what's come out of sort of this arise stuff in terms of sexual abuse, because in some ways the mega church has cultivated this culture for something like this to happen and silence women as a result. And there's not even conversation about consent. Oh, there's not even yeah. one conversation about what it would look like to have a healthy version of that. And not not even consent within marriage. But it's not even in that realm of things when everything is supposed to be so approved of and suddenly the day mm. you get married, you're supposed to be this wild fox in bed and meet your <laughs> husband's wildest sexual needs. There's no conversation about consent within that as well. So it's yeah. not even just what happens outside of long-term relationships. It's what happens within the long-term relationships as well. That is really scary. Yeah, for sure. And the amount of testimonies as well. I saw of male leaders get up and talk about how they had sex before marriage. And that was their testimony. And a lot of it was almost not even taking responsibility for it. They would all say, oh, I just got tempted. You know, I shouldn't have done this. And I don't know. It was that shaming. Of women for I don't know it was really I don't think I don't think I've ever heard in my time at church a woman stand up and have that same testimony yeah yeah because the woman has disappeared usually if like if if she's the one who's led them astray right yeah mm-hmm. and so yeah the man yeah. stand maybe <clears throat> has to take a bit of time out but he'll be back yeah and mm-hmm. and yeah. Yeah, because the God only men. Mm. <laughs> yeah, so the purity part of the whole purity culture is the female. Yeah, it's all to and, do you know, that. That has her. deep historical roots too, right? Like, so this is that's not just a modern megachurch phenomenon. Like, even if we think about, you know, marriage and virginity and the way that functioned, like in in the ancient world, you know, where where all of that was around ownership and possession and and rights and mm-hmm. competition with other men and and so on. So. You know, the origins mm. of so much of that conversation are shaped by property and control um, until such a time as the, you know, I know it's like it can also be a lovely aspect of what we do, but like then the dad gives away the daughter to the to the man, you know, yeah. like all of those things stem from that that kind of history of, of property and control mm-hmm. and kind of male supremacy in that sense. And then flows into or is in a symbiotic relationship with, some of these frameworks of, of purity culture, which kind of baptize all of that and make it um, God's dis, God's plan too, which, I mean, how can you fight against that? Mm. Yeah, I think, you're, yeah. I'm, I'm just reminded of the kind of whole idea that women's survival is dependent on 
men. And historically, that has been true in terms of how our systems have been set up. Mm. And I think that that's still very much alive and well, that concept. And, you know, when we talk about a woman's role within the church, a lot of it has to do with um, being able to survive and thrive um, by being attached to a male figure. And so that kind of leads into maybe the, the next question. And it's, I am interested in, in some degree in how, like within those spaces, even women would talk about kind of finding. So one of the phrases that that I used to hear um, would be, especially at those women's conferences that I was always at, um, was like, the man may be the head of the home, but the woman's the neck that turns the head, you know, like, so you end up in uh-huh. this weird kind of... <laughs> I wish everyone could see the reactions of both of you just then. Was, you know, uh, yeah. Um, what's what's kind yeah, of interesting to me? And, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, you go. No, I just... Hmm. What's interesting about that for me is the way that... that um, oh, my gosh, there's so much to that. I think there's a, there's a lot that speaks to manipulation in that. Mm. I think there's a lot that speaks to influence and how we describe women as being temptresses being able to influence so women have the power to influence but it also feels like it's a little bit of permission for women to be manipulative and deceptive in some way to get what they want Mm. instead of just actually being able to have what they want yeah and to just be able to voice what they want what their needs are they've sort of we've got to covertly go around all these corners Mm to change the way our husband sees something to be able to get what we want. So when I put out a question recently on, on Instagram for a bunch of feedback, one of the things that kept coming up for women in particular who were, who were responding was the sense of, I don't having maybe come out of that kind of space, like how hard it had been. And, and I think you've both kind of alluded to this as well, actually, how hard it had been to try and figure out how to even know what they want. Um, or what it means to prioritize their own needs. So is that like I'm, I'm, my sense is that that's something you would you would resonate with in terms of what happens within that space. Um. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that strikes me, uh, yeah, I think for me it was definitely in terms of career as well. You know, women were, you know, forced to go down these care taking paths, nursing, social work. Uh, and I found it really difficult to find a career path that wasn't also one that was taking care of people and serving people. And I couldn't just be a boss ass finance gal. I'm not a boss ass finance gal, but I, you know, I wouldn't (laughs) be allowed to do that. Um, And again, I also, I think this part of this is the control that the mega church had over women, but also just the deconstruction process and questioning everything I'm not very good at decision-making anymore. Like I just get freaked out about saying yes or no to something because I'm scared about what I used to say yes and no to and what I used to believe. Um, And now I just, yeah, don't really know if anything holds true and it's confusing. I'm I'm the worst at decisions. Mm. But um, yeah, I think that's like a little bit of, yeah, being a female in the church, but also just deconstruction. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, circling back to the mistrust conversation, um, I think oh, I think yeah. as women we're told a lot that we don't know what we want 
And I think we believe that. Um, and I think we're so conditioned to be caretakers that we shut off the parts that ourself, of ourselves that are telling us really clearly what we want to need for so long that we just forget how to listen to ourselves. Mm. And I think for me, that is something that I'm coming back around to being able to trust that I actually do know what I want and I do know what I need. It's just that I've been out of practice for so long at listening to that, that it's hard for me to discern what it is. But that part of me is still there. Yeah. And one, I do know what I want. I do know what I need. And I have permission to be able to get what I want and ask for what I need. Mm. Those mm. things feel really rebellious in the context mm. of the megachurch. And that the more that I kind of suffer those things, whether that's like dropping into how my body feels about something, following my intuition, not asking for advice all the time or approval about a decision and actually just making it, even if I'm not sure, like those tiny little steps are helping me claim back that identity of like who I am and also helping to me to trust again myself. Yeah. And I think, I think that message of women don't really know what they want or what they want is dangerous or what they want is unattainable. Like that's actually programming conditioning that we've been given. And if we can kind of see how that's at work and go, actually, like, I don't want that anymore. Then I think we'll really find that we actually do know. We do know exactly what we want and what yeah. we need. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I really resonate with that, Jess. And the female intuition is so, so powerful and learning to sort of, trust it like you said is, is a process and a journey and one that was suppressed for so so long and it's one that I am still battling I can say that much <laughs> yeah yeah and it's one that comes with resistance right so yeah. when we actually name what we want and name what we need um there'll be resistance because a lot of our programming doesn't set up women to be able to have the permission to do that Right. Mm -hmm. So if I actually name what I need or name what I want, it'll be really likely that a bunch of people will be really disappointed in me because I'm not stepping into that caretaker role that they're mm -hmm. wanting me to step into all the time. And I'm not caretaking their experience of me. I'm not curating my body or the way that I look or the way that I talk to protect their feelings. So there's a lot of like resistance with it. And I think especially within the church context, if we don't have peace about something, we can make it feel wrong, but it's not necessarily wrong, you know? And I think that's an interesting thing as well when we talk about, do I have peace about something? Well, yeah. that's different to being, do I just comply with everything? You know, those are two different things. Wow. Yeah. And you can be trained to not feel peace about things that you should, you know? feel peace about um yeah if the whole system yeah. is telling you this is not something you should be allowed to do or this is not available to you then it's very mm -hmm. unlikely you're gonna feel my peace about that right yeah mm. and just because there's conflict doesn't mean it's wrong mm. it doesn't mean yeah. that you're doing the wrong thing or making the wrong decision or that speaking out for your needs was wrong or speaking or wanting something is wrong 
Mm. You know, part of I think being in that role of women and trying to kind of detangle from that is that some of it's going to feel uncomfortable for sure. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a weird thing. And and when I got married, we went into our relationship and then into our marriage very much with this like equal partnership no one's in charge um, mentality and it was just interesting in that space hearing like the questions that would come up for people which would be like but what's going surely and they'd say this to me (laughs) when when it comes down to it if there's something you disagree with someone has to make the call right so who has the final decision making authority like this is always the question that would come up and it's just, I don't know, it's just, I find it such a, a sort of a bizarre question, really. Um, and perhaps speaks question. to a lack of emotional health for everybody in a system, if that's, if that's the point you keep having to come to, where you're like, who's going to make the final call? Because um, it just seems so bizarre and so far in uh, 14, nearly 14 years. Um, that just, that question doesn't make sense in the context of, a, of anyway, the kind of relationship we have. Um, yeah. I think it's because we just don't know what, well, for me personally, I haven't seen a lot of heterosexual relationships actually model real mutuality with no power dynamic. And I think like that question is concerned with power, like, Mm. well, who gets the say in the end, you know, Mm -hmm. whose authority do you defer to? Um, Not could there be a million possibilities where, of things that we could both agree on when it comes to this thing, you know, there's, and I think we just, we are just starved for examples of relationships that are respectful and loving and caring and mutual both ways. Um, that doesn't seek to control another. Mm. I think we genuinely just don't know <laughs> what that looks like sometimes. Mm. I mean, yeah, that's just true for me. Mm. You know, I, I was, I left the church a bit younger, like 17. And if I was like completely honest with myself, I think the church made me scared of marriage, to be quite honest. Mm. Just this idea of control and having to do the emotional under labor. Like I always really wanted to have a cool career and do all these things and travel. And it's now in my, I'm now in my late twenties and I'm now starting to realize that perhaps marriage is not something that is going to be part of my life. It might be. And I've realized that it's just because that's me and just realizing how much fear around marriage I was sort of <laughs> drilled mm. <laughs> with um, in the mega church has been interesting to reflect on. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of these issues are, are even, you know, are, are deeply kind of ingrained within the like, the broader evangelical kind of Pentecostal complex system. Um, And so you'll find some of these systems playing very much out within smaller church spaces as well. Um, I think perhaps what makes the mega church kind of stand apart is the level of power and the level of kind of um, apparent kind of glitz that they can can add to this dynamic. Do you know what I mean? Um, Some perhaps in the kind of the... The, the churches of a past era, that power, that's, it doesn't look very attractive anymore because it's the, you know, I grew up with the, there were these magazines called Above Rubies where with pictures of women and jerseys that knitted and lying on the grass while they read their Bibles and stuff. And, um, <laughs> and you know, now that probably wouldn't be very um, 
attractive model of male female relationships um, within within like contemporary church spaces. But what mega churches have managed to do is like polish that up and turn it into this like shiny, exciting thing. Yeah, kind of the use of like culture and art and music and all of that to sort of cloak these quite fundamental ideas. Mm. Um, and I even think that, you know, Shalomi, with your experience writing about, um, you know, racism in the mega church, and I think, you know, being cool, being relevant, having great music, having like all these things can actually like be used as an excuse to do those kinds of things, to not understand the gravity mm. of harm because you are, but we're relevant, we're modern, and we sort of want to empower women because we let them speak and we, we, we sort of care about yeah. diversity in the church because, look, they're singing on stage or we're praying for disabled people or whatever it is. But there's no, like... What I feel like is it's I just feel like a mass marketing curation of a story mm. without deeply caring about the human experiences that are happening within your church, oh. right? It's like the yes. ideal curation just keeps like folding in on itself over and over yeah. and it just keeps erasing all these identities. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So perhaps if we circle back around to that, Shalomi, and you, you mentioned earlier some of your, ex- at least one of your experiences around being young, like a young woman of colour within within that space. Do you want to, uh, and you've written about that, as you, as you said, do you want to maybe speak to the nature of that experience and some of your observations yeah. or reflections in there? Yeah, for sure. And I think just before speaking about race, I might just want to, um, yeah, just clarify some terms because sometimes I get weird DMs. <laughs> that would be good <laughs> if... Um, yeah, clarify them. So um, I might refer to whiteness. Well, I will refer to the idea of whiteness. And by whiteness, I mean the privileging of racial and cultural co- characteristics associated with Western Europeans. I don't necessarily mean white people. So in the context of megachurch, it really rewards whiteness. Um, people that act white, people who speak white. Um, and so you, as a woman of colour, you have to assimilate to this whiteness to progress. Um, Another term is BIPOC, so that's Black, Indigenous and People of Colour, or just POC, People of Colour. The idea of colonisation, which is the actual process of settling among and establishing control of Indigenous people in the area. Um, uh, Christianity um, has been used as a tool by colonisers. So something really interesting is my great-grandfather was the first... um, Christian in my family before that we were Hindus so if it wasn't for colonization I wouldn't be on this podcast so (laughs) shout outs um (laughs) I'm joking of course um (laughs) and also intersectionality so this is a term that um is becoming quite popular um uh introduced by Patricia Hill Collins and Kimberly Crenshaw to black feminists um and it's the idea of many systems of oppression Things like class, sex, and race acting in constructive interference to subordinate women and gender diverse people. And so it's pretty much the idea that within this megachurch system, I'm not only facing this patriarchy and the subordination of being a woman, but also racism. And Mm. that subordinates me further. Um, And so I think that's quite important to understand. Mm. But yeah, totally. Yeah. So. 
the article I sort of wrote about racism centers around something that sounds clickbaity, but it really did happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess it's important to differentiate between more overt, blatant forms of racism. And I don't really like using the word like subtle racism, but I guess it's more sort of like microaggressions and it's equally as impactful and dangerous, but it's sort of maybe a bit harder to pick up sometimes. Mm. But um, society as a whole has mostly moved away from, I guess, overt forms of racism um, and calls it out for what it is. Um, But the megachurch just hasn't. And so I've talked about how um, the Friday night youth ball, there there would be balls maybe like three times a year. And one ball, one Friday night, um, the youth group decided to host a Bollywood versus Hollywood ball. And I was really excited. I invited 12 of my school friends to come along. My mum took a day off work um, to dress everyone in saris. And if you know about sari draping, it's a very long process. It's very beautiful. It's cultural. It's spiritual. And mum also made us um, curry. And we were just having a really great day before the ball. And we carpooled to the ball. And I look at the youth pastor. And he's painted his face brown. He's painted his hands brown. He's painted his legs and feet brown. He's hired some weird costume for what looks like a costume store. Um, is wearing this purple turban looking thing. And is posing in photos, um, saying namaste. Um, and everyone's just laughing at him. But like, just because it's funny that he's done this and yeah that was I don't know one of the things that you get taught in the mega church is all authority is god-given authority and so you don't question leadership but I knew something was wrong but you know I invited 12 of my school friends I couldn't pretend like this was actually I couldn't you know say something um the ball ended up being a bit of a shambles to be honest like um they had a Bollywood versus Hollywood dance off because you really need to put, you know, the culture and whiteness against each other. Um, there was watered down butter chicken. It was just, it was really, really horrible, um, to be quite honest. And I didn't say anything. Um, I didn't feel like I could say anything. And it wasn't until I went to school the next day, my friend said to me, I didn't realize you went to such a racist church. Um, mm. And that was when I think things sort of, unraveled further for me and I started Mm. thinking about other racism that occurred in the church um there were there were a few nights where they were that were named crossing the border Mexican nights and youth would be asked to dress up as Mexicans and leaders would be asked um to dress up as police officers there would be this massive wall and the youth would have to climb over the wall um, and, and avoid being shot by the leaders who were dressed up as police officers by water guns or like rubber guns. Yeah, it's horrific, like horrendous. horrendous. It, I just, yeah, that's horrendous. It's it, it's actually, and it happened several times. Mm. It ha- and this is what's really difficult is. Culture is not embraced. It's a costume party. Mm. Um, it's co- it's sh- you're shamed. You know the youth pastor painting his face brown and then just washing it off in the shower the next day. 
what that does is is just speaks volumes to the fact that they don't see people of color as human beings. It, and like just what you were saying before, it dehumanizes black, indigenous and people of color. And I get so angry when I think about these crossing the border nights because mm. it dehumanizes the experience of people who are in unsafe areas trying to seek refuge, who have been displaced. And it is not only offensive to people of colour and displaced peoples, but it also teaches young white youth that they, they don't need to face any of these issues with any sort of empathy. Mm. And I'm going to be quite frank here because this makes me really effing angry. It's not acceptable. Like, none of it is. It's disgusting. It's horrendous. Mm. And um, the worst part is these youth pastors who let this happen, this youth pastor that painted his face brown is still in leadership. There's no accountability. And that's that's horrible. And the fact that you can sit there, and um, I read out a text message from one of the youth pastors who said that she had deconstructed. And I just thought, how can you do all this, put on events like this, tell me you've deconstructed and expect me to hold space when you completely dehumanized me. Um, and I think that has been really hard to sort of get my head around. Um, and I think the system really is, it silences people of color, women of color, gender diverse people. And I knew subconsciously that if I said anything, that it might jeopardize my opportunity for leadership or becoming involved. And so I was completely silenced and I still, like, it took me so long to forgive myself and that idea of intersectionality, those forms of oppression really silenced me. And if the youth pastor had worked in a corporate space, painted his face brown, like he wouldn't have a job. And the fact that these pastors are still in this system, no apology, no accountability. We we know this happened. There are photos all over social media. Like, I don't know. It's just disgusting. Um, yeah. So that's sort of like, I guess, the first thing I kind of wanted to talk about. I don't know if you wanted me to unpack anything further. Um, and... Would you like me to go on or? Yeah, yeah. go for it. Oh, just, um, yeah. There's also this, um, I'm guess I'm moving towards more, I guess, subtle forms of racism, mm. equally as dangerous, um, is this binary thinking of white or nothing. Um, the church is, the mega church is really bad at understand, like wanting to understand things, nuances, culture, anything that cannot be understood is not accepted. And so, to be white is to be holy, to be white is to be a leader, to be white is to be successful. And I realized that as a woman of color, I didn't identify with any of my brownness and any of my culture for years and years and years. Mm. And that was because I was conditioned to believe that my brownness wasn't um, worth celebrating. It was a costume party, but also I wouldn't be privileged. And, um, might be a bit controversial me saying this, but I can unpack this later, but most people of color are encouraged to marry white people. I didn't actually see couples within the church that were purely just people of color. Um, mm. And again, when you have this direct reward system that I talked about earlier, it gaslights you because you are you know within you that this is wrong and you have this beautiful culture. I'm going home, I'm eating beautiful food and with my hands and speaking Tamil at home 
but then I come into this church environment where the reward is to be white, you feel almost gaslit from actually thinking that culture, like thinking the things that you're thinking about things being wrong. Um, and of course I did not fit in and it was tiring. Um, and it also, um, meant that um uh, the sort of the other idea is that whiteness was really kept and conserved like the amount of times I saw leaders putting in time to um, have coffees with white young people um white women especially when they left the church trying to conserve them and keep them but when I left no one messaged me I got unfriended on Facebook um I think the part that really breaks my heart is seeing my pet my parents no longer go to the mega church they're now part of a Sri Lankan community church which is awesome for them but my parents served on the welcome team for something like 11 years consistently every Sunday chopping fruit in the in the lounge and when they never once got a thank you and when they left they didn't um they no one followed up with them no one spoke to them and they were completely shut out and I hear stories of some of my white friends who've left church and are from you know wealthy privileged families and their families got reached out to when they left um and just the complete disregard for brown and black bodies within the church it's so disgusting mm. and I think probably worth talking about as well as tokenism yeah um so when a person of color is put on stage it's just a tokenistic act or they're greatly othered. Like the one black person I knew in leadership was, was called names. Um, and it's been interesting watching a rise recently um, and their public statements because they had a very white board for a bit and then they changed their board up, added some, you know, different faces. And when it came to facing the media, they put forward the a moldy woman. It wasn't a white man. And again, people of color are used as scapegoats for their emotional labor as well. Um, and and in similar, this um, this sort of female this patriarchy system works quite similarly to um, racism. Is that there is competition between people of color as well. We also don't stand in solidarity because. There are only limited positions for people of color and there are only limited positions for um, leadership positions and speaking engagements that people can co color be involved with. And so it also creates um, competition and, and it's a competition yeah. of who can be the widest, um, who can marry the white man, who can, um, who can pretend to be white and get in. Um, and as a result, it pauses the decolonization journey and the deconstruction journey. And again, like, like within women, um, it's a self-sustaining system. The oppressed keep oppressing the oppressed and it's self-sustaining and quite successful as well for the mega church. Yeah. <clears throat> um, thank you. Um, I, I, one of the things you've written about, recently has been like whiteness and wealth within these spaces as well. Yeah. Um, what impact do you think it has um, when, when the leaders, because a lot of these churches will talk about the fact that they are multicultural and 
like that's often the language sometimes that will be given. Um, and they'll say, look around, multicultural. Um, but often the leaders of these churches, overwhelmingly so, white and often wealthy men as well. What, what, what impact do you see that kind of having? What does that kind of do, if you like? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I have written about this, I think, recently because I've um, read some studies about the prosperity gospel. Mm. And it's interesting because one of the studies showed that black people in America and Hispanic populations in America are more likely to agree with statements from the prosperity gospel than white people are. And that's really, really interesting because this theology, this prosperity gospel is very, very successful in not only, you know, having progressing whiteness, but also retaining people of color and uh, BIPOC. And to break it down, it's pretty simple, to be honest. Like, there is there's a reward system within the church, right? So with prosperity gospel, it teaches if you're faithful, if you um, if you pray enough, you will get wealth and you will get material blessings. And for a lot of minority groups and people that don't often enjoy power and don't have easier access to wealth, um, the prosperity gospel offers some hope. You know, if mm. you can pray and you can be faithful and you can be white, there's a direct correlation to wealth because on stage you are seeing pastors with sneakers, uh, with sneakers, with designer sneakers <laughs> and cars and gold plated toilet seats. And that provides a lot of hope. So the church is very good at, you know, bringing in people of color in that way. Mm. And in a, in a sense, maybe, I don't know, I know there's, there's a lot of research in the majority world, for example, so through Africa and Asia, um, into yes. Latin America and South America, of just the way in which prosperity gospel stuff has kind of exploded in some of those spaces. Yeah. And, it, and it speaks, yeah, to, in a sense, um, instead of changing the system that has led to the impoverishment of these parts of the world, which has largely been um, the West's amassing of wealth at the expense of the rest. Um, and yeah. so instead of addressing any of that kind of structural stuff, instead just export the prosperity gospel and God will magically do it if you pray enough yeah. and give enough. And then yeah. further kind of impoverishing, impoverishing many of these people, except for maybe the few at the top who become the anecdotes to kind of point at and say this can work. Um, yeah, that's it, right? Yeah. Because yeah. I guess within the sort of secular world, you know, ideas of patriarchy and racism and whiteness, is uh, it's migrated through capitalism and business and free markets. And often the church loves to hide behind the facade of, oh, we're not like that. That's them. Mm. But actually that hyper-capitalist component exists within the prosperity gospel. It's just not as overt. Um, And yeah, it's captivating. So Mm. yeah. And I've seen that there's investigations happening in um, Africa as well and um, investigating the impact of the prosperity gospel because it has just been so captivating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It seems like in some sense that kind of, the health and wealth message 
um, further, you know, all of the power systems that we've been talking about today um, in relation to both, you know, male power in those spaces and, and, and whiteness. Um, wealth and blessing that, that gets then possessed by those figures. Um, mm. Layers, I guess, further evidence, it seems to me, that, that they are the aspirational figures. The, yeah. And trenches, you know, in, in, your, in what you're saying there, the whiteness is the, the preferred mode of being, the only real acceptable mode of being in those spaces. Mm. Yeah. Um, in, in terms of, um, perhaps for both of you, as we, we think about um, bringing ourselves towards, uh, uh, towards an end, um, I realized that on, uh, as I started listening back to my own podcast episodes, that I am turning into a, one of those preachers who's like, just as I close, and then there's a further 25 minutes. Anyway, so um, <laughs> this by no means means the conversation is about to end. Um, but, <laughs> but I do, um, I am interested in perhaps, you know, how, how we move toward reshaping communities um, away from some of this, just the toxicity and the and and all of this that, that we've been talking about today, um, and whether or not that's, um, you know, we we had a conversation recently on on in the shift about whether mega churches in particular are even capable of change in response to to any of what's being talked about, and I'm not I'm not sure if you have any thoughts on that, um, but but even aside from that, that we do have communities that are wanting to. I think that are at least well I hope I hope we have communities that are that are wanting to move in directions of health to um do either of you have some thoughts on how we how we might start to disentangle some of this stuff from from these communities mm. <laughs> <laughs> It feels the like unanswerable question. question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an unanswerable question. Um, I mean, I can only speak for what feels, what it feels like for me. Um, and for me currently, and I think hopefully some people can, who are in, within the system of mega church might be able to take something away or not. Um, but for me, it's how do I, how do I understand how the patriarchy, <laughs> um, racism, colonization, all these big words, the programming that the ways of being that I've learned how to be, how do they show up for me in my everyday, in my body, in the way I parent my kids in everything? How is that showing up? Because only like if I can, I just need to be aware of that and then I'll be able to start making change. Um, and I think it's the same for people within the church system, you know, like where am I avoiding my discomfort and my uncomfortable feelings mm. to be able to run toward like a black and white solution to feel better. And maybe perhaps those uncomfortable feelings actually hold a lot of wisdom for the future. And it's actually in like sitting with that, taking ownership 
realizing you're only a human? Like, how do you rehumanize yourself in a system that dehumanizes you by taking a bit of responsibility and feeling the yucky feelings? Because then you'll be reminded that you're just human like the rest of us and that we all feel yucky things. Um, and that by running away from all these yucky things, we're just going to keep repeating them. We're just going to keep repeating the harm over and over. And I think the other side for me is there is no future that I want to be in that doesn't involve the raising up of queer voices. So, um, yeah, that's pretty much it. I, I just don't see a future um, that is super hopeful if we're not working to understand how we live beyond these binary thinkings of black and white, how we we have to reimagine relationships. We have to reimagine what it looks like to treat people as human beings outside of power dynamics and structures that is about control and power over. How do we detangle from that? And we have got, literally, we've got what I think are the prophets of our time, which is the queer community, literally showing us that this is not working and this is the way forward. And I just don't see how, I just don't want to be in a future that doesn't raise up um, and listen to um, people who are part of the queer community. Mm-hmm. And so f- so for me, that's that's kind of what's sitting, sitting there for me at the moment. Yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. So good. Um, I have tried to be optimistic about mega churches in the past. <laughs> I no longer am very optimistic. <laughs> um, but it was <laughs> um it was promising seeing um racism being picked up as a finding in the pathfinding report, which was really nice mm. to see. Um, I think it was a recommendation around a multicultural group. Um yeah, I'm not too sure how I feel about that because it just feels like a bunch of people sort of going down the road, getting butter chicken from down the road and sitting there and ticking that off for, you know, their Thursday night. But <laughs> yeah, but it's a start, I will say that. But for me, it's actually realising that racism, patriarchal systems, misogyny, sexism is actually a systemic issue within the megachurch that requires a systemic solution. Mm. And this is where I get, I hope maybe other church communities can take this on. I'm not sure if the mega church will, but it requires leadership to really check their privilege and really understand, like Jess said, all these big words around, you know, decolonization and whiteness and really sit with it and reflect. And that's a whole process on its own. And I think the second part to that would be that they have to give space to voices. And like, I really, I really agree with what you said, like queer voices need to be elevated, people of color, women. um, And that requires a lot of making space and systemic change, not just putting a token up on stage because you need to tick that off for Sunday. And that requires a lot of power to be shifted. And I just am not sure if the mega church will do that, if I'm quite honest, just seeing what's happening out of a rise as well. But I think second to that and probably more confronting for women and people of colour is we really need to start standing in, sol- standing in solidarity with each other. You know, like the, the the system is putting us against each other, putting us against our own own people, um, putting us against, and, and, and it's doing that so that we don't actually, you know, 
make any sort of change or speak up. So especially for people of colour, like you need to start backing each other and if you have the capacity to do so, support each other in calling out systems of racism or being actively anti-racist is very, very important and it's same for women as well. Um, and I think that is probably the like a good first step is if we all, yeah, standing in solidarity. Thank you. Um, it's awesome. Uh, interesting as you're talking about the systemic thing and one of the things I've been reflecting on just over this period of time has been how kind of evangelical slash, I don't know, conservative Western white Christianity has, it just struggles to deal with anything systemic. Um, yeah. Everything is reduced down to, and there's, you know, there's there's perhaps why it aligns so um, so well with like, you know, hypercapitalism because it's so individual. It's like the faith is individual. Like it's me and me and God and my individual kind of salvation. And then everything about the messages I hear are about how I can transform my life um, and take responsibility for yeah. my progress. Um, and so everything, it seems to me, is couched through these very personal individual terms. So you're kind of gathered in these huge, massive groups, but all of you are are seen as these um, isolated kind of silos, all having these individual relationships with God and going on these little personal um, journeys. And because of that whole framework, it seems to me that there's just such a lack of capacity to even think systemically. So, like, we've got to think about the systemic nature of these issues and, and I just see people kind of scratching their heads going, what's this... What's a systemic? What's a systemic yeah. thing? You know, or like, you know, that's not really what. Um, that's not really what we're about, or, or whatever. And, and so I think, like, what you're sharing there is such an important challenge. To um, and you know, as someone who still does um, participate and help to shape faith community, a faith community, um, albeit very un un mega. Um, <laughs> It's, you know, it's such an important challenge to continue reflecting on the systems and structures that um, are not accidental. They have been, even if not always consciously, sometimes consciously designed uh, in certain ways to preserve certain power um, within specific groups. Um, and in particular, like for people like me, right? That's the system has been designed to my advantage. And so there's a challenge to me to, to like you said, Jess, sit with that discomfort. And that's another thing that's come up a lot this year is how uncomfortable so many people are with these conversations. And I think it was after one or two episodes of us talking about it that started getting messages from people saying, okay, cool, can we move on now uh, and talk about, you know, uh, how everything's going to be great and <laughs> it's all going to come right it's like, actually, we've got to be able to sit in the discomfort for, for longer than 45 minutes um, if we're really going to grapple with any of that. So anyway, all of that to say thank you to both of you for, for those, I think, insights and invitations and challenges. Um, is there anything else you want to say before we finish or do you feel like you said all of the things you wanted to say? I'm just yeah. very grateful. Sorry. I'm very grateful, um, Shalomi, for your 
um, story and your thoughts and everything that you've just shared and your voice in this space. I have, um, yeah, I've, I've really learned a lot from you from this conversation. Mm. And also I feel a lot of overwhelming feelings from your story too. Um, and knowing that our paths actually crossed for many years together too. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of feelings there too. But I'm, I just wanted to say how grateful I am for everything that you've shared and the work that you've put in. Um, yeah, all the work that you've put in to be able to talk about these things as well. So, so grateful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes, that means a lot to me. Yeah. I'm actually hiding downstairs because I don't want my parents to hear me talk about all this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> It's all right. No one will hear this except us three. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, thank. Look, thanks to both of you, and and for the generosity of of both of you and offering your stories and being willing to share those experiences because they are hard fought, and I don't want to take that lightly. Um, so I'm deeply grateful for for both of you uh, and, and what you've been able to, uh, I guess, offer me in, in today's conversation because I've got a lot to think about too and feel. Classic, classic me response. A lot to think about. I'll just ignore all the feelings. I'll shovel those down. <laughs> yeah. oh, yes, um, so thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Michael. So there you go. There you have it. My conversation with Jess and Shalomi. Thanks as always to Reese Michelle for his taking of these audio files that I give him and turning them into something that is listenable in your lovely and beautiful ears. Until next time. <laughs>